You're listening to Radio Free Philosophy. Radio Free Philosophy. My name is Kevin Brown. And I'm Bob Uricu. And last time we were discussing Plato and his theory of the forms, which uh, did not go unchallenged even in Plato's day. In fact, uh, as is often the case, one of his students uh, was also one of his most vocal critics, a fellow named Aristotle. So let's deal with Aristotle today. And I think you highlight one of the most important contributions Aristotle can make to anyone studying philosophy today, and that is, it's okay to challenge the accepted wisdom of the day. It's okay to challenge your teacher. It's okay to challenge politicians. It's okay to challenge anyone. Yeah, that is is part of philosophy. Certainly, that's a very useful uh, lesson in philosophy, but one that also seems to frustrate a lot of people, I notice, when I teach Aristotle, the first thing, of course, I always talk about is the challenges he made to Plato's theory. And that gives students the sense that there's nothing really objective going on. It's just a bunch of different people arguing uh, by just disagreeing about their opinions. But, of course, to come to some sort of objective truth, you do need that sense of challenge or dialogue. Always. And Plato said he had the objective truth, and that was in the world of forms, the world of ideas. And Aristotle had both feet planted on the ground and said, no, this is the real world, the world we can see and touch and taste and smell. A lot of people associate philosophy with, again, ivory tower thinking up in the air, not remotely related to practical life. But yeah, <clears throat> yeah, sure. He, he couldn't understand, Aristotle couldn't understand why it is that Plato would postulate some other world when we had enough trouble explaining the world we live in right now. And so Aristotle's theory is much more sort of tied to the ground, so to speak. And you you focus precisely on a major problem that students have with philosophy, namely that that philosophy is just a series of opinions, one challenged by the other. But if we look at the Plato-Aristotle model, we can see Plato saying, I have the right way of thinking. Everything else is opinion because everything in this world changes. I'm showing you that there is an unchanging world where we can, re- we can rely to find truth. We can be certain that there's a, there is beauty out there somewhere. And that's what Aristotle challenged. Certainly, uh, not, not that Aristotle was against the idea of, of beauty or truth or justice or any of those other forms, but uh, if you're gonna make a claim such that Plato made, you've gotta have some evidence to back it up, and that's what Aristotle was asking for. Where's your evidence for this? Beyond simply the deductive reasoning process, you need some empirical evidence, which was one of the big differences between Plato and Aristotle. Sure, that was a strong point. Aristotle spent a lot of time uh, on the seashore, examining shells and, and the creatures. If anyone's ever walked along the beach, you see evidence of all kinds of life, some of it alive still, some previously having lived in seashells or crab skeletons, and Aristotle delighted in in, uh, a day at the beach because he could see and classify all kinds of new things, new new living forms. And for Aristotle, that is the real world, not 
not a world of just thinking. And this is hard for, I think, contemporary people like us to understand that the idea of empirical observation was such a new radical notion, but it really was in, in Aristotle's day. I mean, th there weren't a lot of people doing philosophy who said, let's go around and observe and make sure our theories accord with actual real-world observations. Aristotle was saying that and being radical as a result of that. Sure, and, and without Aristotle, I wonder if we could have even had modern science as it is today because he was he was forgotten for many many years in Europe and only after his rediscovery did science begin to take major strides previous to to Aristotle when the world the European world relied on Plato for its ideas um, we speak of Europe as being plunged into the dark ages yeah and it really was due to the uh, rediscovery of Aristotle's ideas which took the world as much by storm then as they had the first time around. In fact, in areas like logic, I know Aristotle's uh, contribution was so large, it actually set back thinking in some areas because people figured, well, Aristotle had already figured it out, so what was there left to do? There weren't any major contributions made to the field of logic until the 19th century. 19th century, exactly. Primarily because of Aristotle's uh, influence. In fact, people uh, in the late Middle Ages took to calling him the philosopher. The philosopher. That's how he was known. Yes, and they made the same mistake that Aristotle refused to do. Aristotle refused to give Plato so much authority that his thought couldn't be questioned. But people fell into that trap and and did not question Aristotle. Yeah, he, I, he was a new idol, a new person on a pedestal. Certainly, and Aristotle would not have been in favor of that not at, all. Uh, at all. He would have been the first to say, go out and test my conclusions, and if they don't uh, pass the test, then, then we should look for different conclusions. I think it's very interesting to look at the, um, the Muslim world um, when the geographical area of Europe was plunged into what we call the Dark Ages, when science wasn't advanced at all, and the basic scientific uh, premises came from Plato, the Muslim world discovered Aristotle, translated him from Greek into Arabic, and we had major uh, leaps in, in medicine, in, in biology, in architecture, in, in, in mathematics, in the Muslim world. And the proof of that is just even in our fact that we use Arabic numbers today. In sure, yeah, all uh, due, at least in part, to Aristotle. And in fact, when we rediscovered uh, uh, the Aristotle, thanks to the Arab culture, uh, it was so sophisticated, once we translated it back into a language we could understand, we found we didn't have words for some of the, the concepts because That's they were right. just too far ahead of us. Words right. like elixir, uh, azimuth, a mathematical term. And algebra. And algebra, certainly. Sure. Uh, zero. Yes, that concept didn't exist. Aristotle had to be translated from Arabic into Latin in order to, to be read in Europe. So that was a major contribution of the Muslim world to the West. And we're, uh, we're in some sense still seeing contributions by Aristotle, particularly in ethics now. Many people are interested in, uh, in some of Aristotle's contributions and still think his notion of virtue and living a life according to virtue is, is very relevant in, in the world of applied ethics, particularly in business ethics. Uh, it's a very important concept. So what was Aristotle's big beef with uh, 
with Plato's theory. I mean, we were uh, rhapsodizing the virtues of it last week, and now here we are about to uh, trash it. Well, virtue for Aristotle is different than virtue for Plato. Plato felt that there, as we discussed last time, there's a world of ideas, the world of forms, and the good is the most compelling of all the forms, and that all ethical life consists in remembering what good behavior was, what the good is, and all education, in fact, for, for Plato is remembering, the process of remembering, getting rid of the, uh, the amnesia we suffered when we were born into this world. So the ethical life, virtue, seems to be limited to those few educated people who can remember, can be taught to remember the world of ideas and to resemble the good more and more. But like a lot of Aristotle's theory, his virtue ethics is more tied to something concrete and observable. Absolutely. Behaviorally. Absolutely. Right? How does one act? What what counts as a virtuous action? Sure, his um his ethics comes down come down to us in, in um in the form of a letter that he purportedly wrote to his son, his son named Nicomachus, who asked his father, how do I live a good life? How do I become a good man? And Aristotle responded by saying, follow the mean between extremes. Don't do extreme things. Always follow the mean. He called it the golden mean between extremes. Um, for example, courage. What does it mean to be courageous? It means to avoid the two extremes of, of foolhardiness and cowardness. Cowardice. Don't lay your, your life down needlessly, and don't be afraid of conflict in life. The, the middle path is courage. And you can say that with all, all the virtues. Temperance. Um, trustworthiness. Trustworthiness, exactly. And in some sense, you can even say Aristotle's metaphysics follows that same rule. Uh, don't follow the extremes, because with regard to Plato's theory of the forms, Aristotle is not saying forms don't exist, which would be one extreme, but he's also saying that Plato's notion of a transcendent form is also flawed at the other extreme. So the answer lies somewhere in the middle. Exactly, somewhere in the middle, because Aristotle kind of made fun of Plato because Plato said that the connection between what we see in this world and the really real world of forms is some kind of a magical bond or, or a connection and Aristotle said where is that connection show it you're just you're just making up answers you're just making up yeah Plato was never very clear about the idea clear. I mean somehow the the objects in this world participate in the forms whatever in the world that mm -hmm. means Objects are supposedly copies of the forms, but Plato never seems to address the question of how do the copies get made. Exactly. Uh, and so Aristotle, in effect, said to Plato, all you're doing is pulling a rabbit out of a hat. It just seems like kind of a trick, a wordplay. And Aristotle faulted Plato very much because Plato seemed to play down or denigrate or devalue the idea of change. That change is not a good thing for Plato. It's permanence, the world of ideas that's really good, and changes, hints at something defective. Whereas Aristotle said, life is change. Let's admit it. It's real. Let's embrace it. 
So Aristotle embraced the idea of change rather than fighting it like Plato. Yeah, because one thing your, your theory has to do if you're going to put forward a metaphysical theory is explain the obvious fact of change in this world, which I don't think Plato denied, did he? That no. There was change in this no. world. He just supposed that the change in this world was somehow connected to an unchanging world, which Aristotle could not understand at all. How in the world can an unchanging entity like a form cause an object in this world which changes? And right. so what you've got to do is you've got to postulate that the form is in this world, or as Aristotle says, imminent. It's in the object itself, and exactly. then it's observable. Yeah. So while we see material things, we don't see the forms. Aristotle never denied there, there are forms, but he said that form and matter coexist together and are always together. Yeah, because if you think about it, what Plato is asking us to do seems impossible. How in the world can you conceive of a tree without putting it in tangible terms? Even in your thought, you, you think of a certain tree, you think of the height of the tree, the color of the tree, but supposedly the form is more abstract than that. Yes. And for Aristotle, the idea that the form could be conceived of apart from the material component was just impossible. I mean, what sense could it make to say there's an unmattered form any more than there could be unformed matter? You can't just think of the concept of matter. Right. It's got to be in a form. Aristotle had, had such a concept called prime matter, but no one could see prime matter because it had to be informed by a form. So he explained the process of change as a gradual losing by matter of forms and taking on other forms. We can see, for example, a leaf. A leaf is visible to us because it has the form leafness, but it can give up the form leafness by being burned, for example. And it, it acquires a new form called ash or ashness. Now, this raises an interesting question, which certainly is a big difference between Plato and Aristotle, because for Plato, he would describe that process as a process where the object here changes, but the form leaf is immune from that change. Mm -hmm. Now, for Aristotle, if the object itself has the form and the matter takes on a new form, what happens to the old form that's cast off? It doesn't continue to persist in some transcendent world because it was never there. So what happens to that that form that the matter used to have? Well, the form is capable of multiple, multiple, I'll say, incarnations or embodiments. And it just goes into another form. For example, uh, another object, like a, a leaf on an oak tree budding. The leaf form leaves the leaf when it's burned and goes into another object, like the bud on the tree that's about to become a leaf. So in order to, to make this coherent, Aristotle developed his concept of the four causes, that everything we perceive, everything that's real, must consist of four causes or is there because of four causes. And so he called these causes the material cause first, because without matter you wouldn't have a thing. And then he called for a formal cause, which is the way matter is perceptible to us. Let's take the leaf again. The leaf has a material cause, matter. Even though we can't see it, it's there. 
but the reason it's visible is that it has a formal cause, the form of leafness. And this is certainly a, a somewhat strange idea to us because when we think of cause, we don't think of either one of those things. That's right. We mostly think of what Aristotle called the efficient cause, the actual process that brings something into being. Yes, some For us, things. that's what cause is, but the Greeks had a much wider sense of cause, including the last element that Aristotle talks about, which is the reason for something existing in the first place, exactly. its final cause. Exactly, the final cause, which means the purpose cause. And... The efficient cause, another name for that would be um, the instrumental cause, the instrument by which something comes to be. So even the human person is a, is, a, is a kind of a combination of all four causes. There's the material form, which we usually call the body, the formal cause, which is the spirit. Aristotle believed everything had a spirit, every living thing had a spirit, soul as it were. Mm -hmm. And the efficient cause would be the act of reproduction that enables the body and soul to unite. And the final cause is always the intention. For Aristotle, uh, a man and a woman intend to procreate, they intend to bring about new life. So the most important form of all is the, is the final cause, the final cause, the, the purpose cause. That's the reason anything comes to be. And this raises a question we might uh, want to address in a little more detail, perhaps after we take a, a small break, which is, if everything has a purpose, how do we discover what the purpose is for human beings? That seems like a very important philosophical question that Aristotle certainly spends a lot of his time talking about, at least in the ethics. So let's, uh, let's take a little break, and then we can come back and f sort of... Uh, focus on the, the purpose question and maybe get a little more sense of, uh, of what Aristotle has to say. Okay. You're listening to Radio Free Philosophy. So before the break, uh, we were talking about Aristotle and his four causes, which is uh, a very interesting difference between Aristotle's theory and Plato, because Plato seemed to have this idea that form was the only cause, mm -hmm. never mind how in the world the form actually caused the objects, which was something Aristotle wondered about. But Aristotle's notion of causality is much broader, including this really interesting notion that might sound strange to the modern ear, 
but that the purpose of something is part of its cause, this notion of the final cause. Yes, and the purpose is not only its cause, it's its end, its goal, its destination. So one of the big philosophical questions often asked in this course is, what's my purpose in life? And Aristotle addressed that in his ethics. You know, his ethics are, are called the Nicomachean ethics because he, he addressed them to his son Nicomachus. They're also called his Eudamian ethics. Right, right. And that's because of a, a simple word Aristotle uses to denote the purpose of all human existence, the goal of all human life, and that is eudaimonia, or happiness. The, the word in Greek literally means a good spirit, a good demon inside you. And you want to feel good about life and what you're doing. Everyone wants that. And Aristotle recognized that and said that's the main purpose in ethics, to arrive at the point where you feel good about yourself and you make other people feel good about themselves, that everyone has what's just and right in life, and everyone admires you for your honor, your virtue, and you admire other people. That's, that's ethics in a nutshell. And it's a shame that the uh, uh, ethics is not really widely read these days because it really is one of the first sort of self-help books. Aristotle is really addressing Precisely. the question of how can you help yourself Precisely. be happy. And he recognizes, as many self-help gurus do today, that happiness is in large part due to your own actions and attitudes. So you can't depend on somebody else to make you happy or you can't depend on some other thing to make you happy. It's oh. how you live your life and what you do. Although many inauthentic people do rely on things and other people to make them happy and don't take responsibility for their own happiness. Certainly, yeah. Well, if I uh, get that new car, I'll be happy. Sure, uh, sure. If only uh, my boss would give me a raise, I'll be happy. Well, those things are not, uh, not really tied to happiness in any significant way. I mean, it's what you're doing. Uh, and as you point out, Aristotle said, uh, the big part of what you're doing is living according to the virtues. That is what's going to make you happy in the long run. Yes, yes. Um, Aristotle predated all these self-help books and doesn't say anything different than what they say these days. That the goal of life is happiness, and every one of us yearns to be happy. I don't know anybody who wakes up in the morning, looks in the mirror, and says, how can I make myself unhappy today? Right, right. We, but Aristotle's giving us a precise roadmap. Yes. Some of these self-help uh, gurus today don't seem to do. They, they sort of stay on the level of broad generalities, but they don't give me the clear outline of what should I do uh, to improve my, my happiness. And Aristotle's doing exactly that because literally in the ethics, he goes through pages and pages of virtues and the extremes to avoid. And as you point out earlier, the golden mean to pursue uh, is the virtue, yes, and that's what's going to lead to uh, to happiness. He called the extremes vices. An extreme at either end is a vice, and the word virtue, um, I don't know, I, I suppose it has interesting um, Latin roots. It means manliness. It means strength. Virtue is not for the weak in Aristotle. It's a strong attribute of a person. It's a vice characterizes the weak. And just like our notion of causality has become more restrictive since Aristotle, our notion of virtue seems to have become more restrictive as well because our sense of what virtue really refers to is a much narrower concept than the Aristotelian notion of virtue. He's not simply talking about, for instance, sexual morality, which many people might 
might uh, view as the connotation that virtue has now, but it's a much broader uh, sort of thing, right? Uh, yeah. There, there are many aspects of being being virtuous. In, person, in, in Aristotle, a person of virtue is a person of strength and not a weak person at all. I, I think our contemporary image of a virtuous person is a Casper Milk Toast or a Goody right. Two Shoes or something like that. That's not Aristotle's view at all. Um, for Aristotle, understood the military, the, the courage of a warrior was someone who, who was not afraid of combat but didn't shrink from it but didn't expend his life uselessly. Certainly, yeah, and that could be said for uh, the other virtues as well. Truth-telling. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't go around always telling the truth, but then then again, you don't go around uh, being a congenital liar either. The, the virtue is somewhere in between. Um, the Dalai Lama has an interesting take on this that seems to me very Aristotelian because he's not in favor of selfishness in the sense of always looking out for yourself and always doing things for yourself. But he does recognize there are certain benefits to being selfish sometimes. So he, the Dalai Lama says we should be wisely selfish. And that could easily be translated into the Aristotelian notion of behaving according to a certain virtue. Because obviously you do have to look out for your own well-being. Sure. Um, that's just, it's, it's traditional wisdom. It's even seen like in, in Rabbi Hillel in the first century who um, asked the question, if, if I am only for myself, if I am not for myself, who will be? But also ask the question, if I am only for myself, what am I? I'm not a virtuous person because I'm only for myself. So Aristotle tapped into the traditional wisdom and it's just a shame he's not read more often. And then there's another context that we might want to talk about uh, in the few minutes we have remaining about Aristotle uh, because a lot of people today look in terms of of religion for their moral guidance mm-hmm. and of course Aristotle has some interesting things to say about God but certainly not in the conventional Judeo-Christian sense of the word he, he more talks about uh, an abstract principle governing the universe yes I think Aristotle would scoff at many contemporary notions of people who who try to do the right thing out of fear of going to hell or or out of a reward of an eternal life or whatever. That wasn't Aristotle's idea at all of virtue. Um, in a sense, God didn't enter into it at all. One was virtuous because that was their purpose in life, to be a good person. That was their final cause. Um, and this idea of God is often uh, mistaken because Aristotle didn't have the notion of God that we have today, we're encumbered by 20 centuries of Judeo-Christian accretions about investigations into the mind of God and scriptures and all this. Aristotle didn't have that at all. For Aristotle, God was um, more remote and abstract and did not enter into people's lives at all. It was in part due to Aquinas that we got this confusion about the Aristotelian notion of God because Aquinas essentially took the notion of the prime mover and tweaked it into the uh, the notion of God that we now have. Sure, Aquinas blended both Plato and Aristotle into proving the existence of God and showing that the existence of God could be proven by reason alone, and not not by just by Scripture. You didn't have to believe in God to prove God's existence. But um, Aristotle's notion of God was as abstract as you just said—a a prime mover, an unmoved mover. 
he argued that there had to be a cause for everything because if there is movement in the world and change is movement, then you could not carry a series of uh, causes of movement out to, uh, to infinity. It had to begin somewhere or there would be nothing. And if there is motion in the world, Aristotle says, there has to be an unmoved mover. I know it's an extremely abstract concept for a lot of people, but this, it's not, not the bearded god in one of Michelangelo's paintings in the Sistine Chapel. It's, um, it's very, very abstract. But given that Aristotle starts with a criticism of Plato's notion of abstract forms, isn't it kind of ironic that he comes around to an, a notion that's at least as abstract as a Platonic form, which is this unmoved mover? I'll, I'll grant you that. It is abstract. But Plato began by direct observation. We see change in the world. We see motion. The planets move. You mean Aristotle? Aristotle, Aristotle sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Aristotle said any fool can see that there's motion in the world. Now, if there's motion, there has to be a mover. Everything that moves is moved by something else, he says. Now, if you carry that out to infinity, you'd never have motion at all. Motion has to begin with an, a mover that is not moved by something else. And Aquinas would say, and that's what we call our God. Yeah, that's exactly how Aquinas put it. Uh, you know, whether that's what Aristotle would have called our God is, right. is another right. issue entirely. Aristotle certainly had the concept of gods, but he scoffed at the mythological gods, uh, just as many educated Greeks do. The same can be said about Aristotle's uh, discussion of an, of an uncaused cause. Again, he's, he begins in, in real life, in reality around you. What do you know that's not caused? Everything is caused by something else. Everything has a cause. Now, there has to come a point where something must not have a cause or there would be no causes anywhere. And that's what Aristotle would say is God. He wouldn't call it God, but he called, called it the uncaused cause. So there are two attributes of God, motion and causality. God is the unmoved mover and the uncaused cause. I know that sounds very abstract. And, of course, we're still trying to struggle with completely understanding the notion of causality, even in scientific terms. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you said earlier in the, in the broadcast, it was probably due in large part to Aristotle's influence that we even have a scientific method or a science as a field of study uh, at all. It's hard to imagine uh, what the West would be like without Aristotle's influence. Sure, especially in, in logic, the, the method of thinking. We, we owe an enormous debt to Aristotle. You know, it's funny that we talk about the influence of, of Aristotle, uh, which was very, very powerful. And as I mentioned earlier, it was due in large part to the influence of Aristotle that logic was set back several centuries because people basically figured, well, if Aristotle figured it out, why, why do we have to uh, ask any questions about it? And it might not come as a surprise to learn that, uh, that this didn't go over well with everybody. In particular, uh, the next character in our story, a fellow named Rene Descartes, mm -hmm. who uh, never liked to get up before noon, <laughs> but he uh, saw as his mission to reawaken philosophy from the slumber that he thought Aristotle had put it into because people stopped thinking after Aristotle. And Descartes can be a lesson for us. Again, Descartes challenged the contemporary 
modes of thinking and the stagnant pool that philosophy had become. So I think that's a lesson for us to always challenge the contemporary modes of thinking. And we'll see that done exquisitely well in Descartes. You're listening to Radio Free Philosophy.